Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb, and today I'd like to present an interview I recorded earlier this month with Sir Ian Livingstone co-founder of Games Workshop and co-author of the Fighting Fantasy Gamebook series. Now, the creations to come out of Games Workshop especially have meant so much to me over the years, and it was a real honor to chat with him about uh, the early days of Games Workshop, about old-school gaming in general, the meaning of games, and, of course, his new book, Dice Men, The Origin Story of Games Workshop, which he wrote with Steve Jackson. The book is out now digitally, and the physical version is either out or available for pre-order, depending on what region you're in. Either way you get it, pick it up. It's a great read. It has so many wonderful images in it. It will really transport you back in time. It tells a great tale. So without further ado, let's jump right into the interview. Hi, Ian. Thanks for joining us. It's great to speak to you today. So the book is Dice Men, the origin story of Games Workshop, uh, written with Steve Jackson. And I think at this point, a great number of our listeners out there are certainly well acquainted with the name Games Workshop. Uh, even if you didn't grow up with the games and the miniatures like, like I did and like many, many others did, you're still going to probably be aware of like, all the novels, the video games, the animated series, and so much more. It's big business. But I thought you might take us back and just in brief remind us what Games Workshop was back in the day when you and Steve Jackson co-founded it. Well, Steve and I were old school friends and we met up in London in the 70s and our passion was playing board games, uh, mainly those that came from the US, games like Diplomacy and Avalon Hill games. And we thought, wouldn't it be great if we could somehow turn our passion of playing games into some sort of fledgling business? So we decided to publish a small fanzine called Owl and Weasel and we sent one copy to everybody we knew in games. 
And although we hadn't sent it to him directly, one found its way to the desk of Gary Gygax in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And Gary wrote to us and said, love your little fanzine. Um, here's this game I've uh, just published and designed. Um, what do you think? And that game was Dungeons and Dragons. And whilst it didn't look much, pretty plain box with a very ordinary illustration on the cover, it opened up your imagination like no game had ever done before, and I don't think any game ever will again, in that it allowed a new form of interactive entertainment, role-playing, people playing as heroes and wizards, exploring the, the labyrinths designed by Games Master, and through theatre on the fly, conversing and, and creating this incredible uh, narrative story between the players as they forged their way through the dungeons, killing monsters and find, finding treasure. So we ordered six copies of D&D because that's all the money we actually had in our lives. <laughs> and on the back of that order, Gary gave us a three-year exclusive distribution agreement for the whole of Europe. So we were effectively all playing as role-playing people about a role-playing game. It, uh, it was very amateurish, but that's that's how things started in the 70s. Yeah, it was fascinating to read your take on the gaming world prior to the creation of Games Workshop and prior to the introduction and creation of, of Dungeons and Dragons. J just how niche was gaming beyond family staples like Monopoly during the, the 1960s, for example? Well, in the UK, there was one company dominated, that was Waddington's, and they published Monopoly, uh, Cluda, which is Clue in the US, Buccaneer, and Formula One. And these games were were enjoyable enough, but they were never satisfied gamers like Steve and myself. We wanted something more where well, there's more strategy than luck and where you could do negotiations and and have a kind of a meta level of enjoyment by all the the bargaining and reneging on deals that could happen. Obviously, diplomacy is perfect for that kind of play where you can mm -hmm. backstab people at will in order to dominate the world. So those are the games we looked looked out for, but D&D really changed our minds of the type of game we wanted to play. We were suddenly immersed in this incredible fantasy world and a kind of Tolkien-esque world of monsters and magic, going on these fantastic journeys of the mind through through conversation. And it was uh, that theatre of the fly that I just mentioned that became uh, a place where we wanted to visit all the time. Are you saying that it also, Dungeons & Dragons, sort of... Um opened up the space for fantasy itself to be part of of gaming because you, you you describe a lot of the the gaming prior to that is is very like historical military based right yeah the miniatures companies in, in the uk in particular were all based on napoleonics ancients and some world war ii uh, but there was no fancy element as such even though fancy was pretty well established in uk mythology from George of the Dragon, or Arthurian Knights, and of course, the books from Tolkien and others. So I guess it was no surprise that fancy gaming would ultimately come along as a, as a viable uh, genre to, to enjoy play. Yeah, you described that even Dungeons and Dragons kind of arises out of chainmail, this military battle game that Gary Gygax had co-created, right? Yeah, but he had this uh, fancy supplement. And when he played um, Dave Arneson's Blackmore, there was that fusion of of the two coming together to create you know, this, this this milestone in gaming history that is Dungeons and Dragons. But it was largely down, I think, to to Gary's making it happen that it was as successful mm -hmm. as it was. Clearly, Dave Arneson had, had kind of probably conceived the original role playing concept 
in a fantasy world as a result of his previous gaming experiences, but it's it's Gary who made it happen. He took what was largely in Dave Arnson's head and turned it into a 50-page rule book and then began the commercialization of that. So he was the driving force behind it. So it, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, you had like the, the family games and then you mentioned like the Avalon Hill games that were coming yeah. in. Um, now, was there was there just kind of like a big gap in complexity between, say, the, the Avalon Hill games and the family games? Was there not much in between? There wasn't really. It was kind of full on hobby gamers, hex grid, long and sometimes difficult to understand rules, which were the the war games and, and particularly SPI war, war games and some, most of the Avalon Hill games. And then there was kind of on the other side of the fence, that's almost too easy to play. So we, we wanted something in the middle. And whilst that was something that we solved through playing Dungeons and Dragons, we also, as Games Workshop, started publishing our own board games to fill that what we thought was a, a viable gap for kind of mid, mid-core gaming experiences. Games like Talisman, Judge Dread, Battle Cars, Apocalypse, and others that we published under Workshop's brand. Um, as well as publishing Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, I, I remember as a as a child before I was became exposed to to many of these other games before being exposed to Dungeons and Dragons and Games Workshop games. Uh, we had family games in the household. My father had some of those uh, SPI games, uh, and I remember wanting to understand them and play them. But as a, a child, I just was completely <laughs> overwhelmed by everything I found in the box. Well, not only were the rule books completely <laughs> lengthy and in, like you need to be kind of a Philadelphia lawyer to understand them. Just setting up the <laughs> counters would take hours as well. And not left any time for actually playing. I mean, some games like 1914 would last for for days if you, if you allowed it mm-hmm. to. So it was almost like work rather than play sometimes. <laughs> uh, and now they on, on the, the subject of, of, of miniatures and miniature war games, until very recently, I really didn't know how much, how far back it went. Um, uh, I, I think I saw, um, and this isn't tremendously old, but I saw some wonderful footage of the late actor Peter Cushing painting miniature soldiers and plotting out battles with like historical based Napoleonic uh, uh, yeah. figures. Is this this is pretty much what it consisted of prior to uh, your work? Well, over a hundred years ago, there was lead miniatures put out there, a kind of fifty-four millimeter scale rather than twenty-five millimeter that we did through typical wargaming and fantasy gaming miniatures of our time. But there were mainly historical figures that people collected and sometimes fought battles. I mean, if you go back to Edwardian times, there were there, was, there were many companies actually producing lead figures which were painted and. Um, so I think toy soldiers is nothing new. It's just that toy soldiers that we made at Citadel Miniatures were 99% fantasy figures rather than historical uh, war game figures. Can you describe a little bit how Citadel Miniatures came together uh, as, as, as part of or auxiliary to Games Workshop? Yes. Well, we'd been running workshops since 1975. Um, we decided to up our game in terms of publishing, so we dropped Owl and Weasel, our little fanzine, and started publishing White Dwarf magazine. And we started running conventions, Games Day. It's one of those conventions that uh, Brian Ansell, who was running a company called Asdark, Asgard Minutes at the time, we met him briefly there. We were also 
uh, ordering quite a lot of giant rats and other figures from him that could be used in in, in D and D games. And uh, he requested a meeting with us, and so we met him in '78. And he said, "You know, I can be the answer to your miniatures problem because at that time we were importing most of our games from from the US, from Ralph Parther in particular, and archive miniatures, and they were obviously very expensive to." to import with not just the shipping costs, but the import duty costs. And then the delivery times were also nightmare. So the logistics of the supply chain was, was a bit challenging. So we agreed that we'd set up uh, a company with him, and we call that company Citadel Miniatures, but it was based in where he lived in, in the Midlands around, um, around Nottingham. And that's how Citadel came to be. And it became you know, just an amazing additive to the to the games workshop remit which has had historically just been publishing board games and opening retail shops shout out to astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples rob as the uh, the local host with allergies here they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies what was your experience like yeah that's right i always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring so they sent me the little uh, nasal spray i tried out the product and yeah it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day and it's so fast acting uh, it was already kicking in before i left the house Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. 
Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And as, as things keep keep moving with the miniatures, uh, like how does it um, how, how does it grow in terms of the miniatures' role in the games? Because I mean, now, nowadays with, with Games Workshop, or at least for for me, like I, I think about the games and the minis, and it's like it's very hard to to differentiate between the two. But it, it sounds like from, from from what I read in the book, like at times that is kind of a, a struggle to decide, even in the early days of Games Workshop, like what is what is the, the area that should be receiving the most attention, the miniatures or the games? Uh, like what is the the interaction between these two areas? Well, Steve and I were running the, the games division effectively. So we wanted to put more resource into publishing board games, publishing more role-playing games, opening more shops, publishing um more magazines as well as white dwarf so it's all around the kind of print media and retail division whereas brian answer was running citadel miniatures wanted more resources allocated to more miniatures and he had a great point because the, the gross margin in, in miniatures was quite high and he also argued that there should be a set of rules that enabled more minutes to be sold because if you're making miniatures for role-playing game you tend to sell them in single units because you only need one beholder or one skeleton or one cleric or one fighter so really that's how the warhammer concept came about as a, as a way to sell units of of miniatures rather than single figures at the same time in 19, at the end of 1978 and uh, we lost the exclusivity with dungeon dragons now gary gygax as i said earlier had given us a three-year exclusive distribution agreement which ended at the end of 78 and the beginning and then in 79 he came to visit us and said that he wanted to merge his company tsr with our company games workshop and we would be given that kind of third of the combined entity but steve and i were kind of independently minded young brits at the time and we didn't want to have a split life between london and wisconsin so we said no to that mm -hmm. merger opportunity so whilst we remind the biggest distributors of Dungeons & Dragons and TSR Hobbies games, we're no longer the exclusive distributor. And it was only a matter of time before they had set up in the UK and have their own distribution points. And we might obviously be, um, that would obviously impact on our, on our sales. So we, know, we knew we needed something that was going to be our own intellectual property. We determined our own, own destiny and our future. But it had to something that could be resonate with a wide audience and be able to scale. So whilst we had some considerable success with, with some of the board games that we published and other role-playing games that we published under license, like Traveller and RuneQuest, um, and imported games like Call of Cthulhu, it wasn't really until Warhammer came about that we were suddenly in, in a much better place in terms of being able to be independent. 
And it was the original idea from Brian Ansell to publish a kind of free set of rules as a, as a, as a giveaway with the mail orders. But then he brought in Rick Priestley and Rick ha Richard Halliwell to kind of beef up the rules. And when they were played, it decided, well, rather than just giving them away, let's make this into a product itself. And that's how Warhammer, the original fancy battle game, came out in, in 1983. And even though it was loaded with errors and mistakes and wasn't particularly complete, it sold out very quickly. Uh, some 3,000 copies went you know, pretty much immediately. So that's how the the second edition of Warhammer came about. And then they realized that, you know what, well, if this is our own IP, we should focus more on it rather than other people's products. Mm -hmm. And therefore Warhammer was really, was that became front and central focus for the whole of the company. So all the rules enabled more minutes to be sold. White Dwarf then focused down on, on, on Warhammer. Um, the retail stores were, we're selling less of imported products and more of our own products. And that, that slow move over happened over quite a few months before it became a totally Warhammer-focused company. Now, in the, the book, you describe the, the first Space Marine minis that come about. And there, there are some lovely photographs as well. I have to stress for anyone out there who's interested in the book, it, um, uh, there, there are so many wonderful um, photographs and uh, like scans as well of some of these, uh, uh, these early magazine publications and you know, early editions of White Dwarf. It's, it's fabulous, like a scrapbook. Well, I, I like to think it as a, as a personal memoir with as much historical, photographic, and image reference as possible, and it's say it's more of a of a, a biogra personal biography, warts and mm -hmm. all, and full of anecdotes rather than a business, a book about business, and that's why there are over four hundred photographs in the book. Some which of which, I mean, a lot of which had never been seen before, you know, rummaging around in the roof. <laughs> In the in, in the loft, looking for uh, old thirty-five millimeters transparencies slides that we had to have scanned, and, and getting really excited finding, looking at slides you hadn't seen for some you know forty-five years is just uh, is an amazing experience in itself. And then writing more and more, and then talking to more colleagues to validate what we'd said, and remembering all this weird stuff that happened like having to live in a van for three months because you couldn't get any bank finance you're going to see the bank manager telling him about dungeons and dragons and it looks like you're like you're mad and ask you to leave so we had to finance everything out of out of cash flow and uh could only afford to rent a very small office at the back of an estate agent and had to live in steve's van throughout three months of an awful winter but uh, you know, I think I said in the book, you could call it living the dream, but clearly it wasn't. But um, when you're driven by passion around your own hobby, it's, it doesn't seem like hardship. The van in question is this is Van Morrison, correct? That, uh, that was that, the nickname. The, the one and only Van Morrison, yes. The big <laughs> blue van that was our home for three months. Yeah, the, um, the 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 personal stories are are, are so, so such a wonderful um, aspect of the book. Uh, again, all these photographs of the real people involved in the in uh, in these games and in Games Workshop, it um, it really beefs up the personal story. And then you have these little uh, so many of these anecdotes and sort of little adventures that pop up along the way. Yeah, like going going to the states to see to see Carrie in nineteen seventy six to, in theory, attend Gen Con nine. But taking like mm -hmm. two months to get there and delivering cars from New York to uh, to LA, then another one from LA to 
San Francisco and then one from to Chicago and all the adventures we had along the route. It was the year of the, of, it was the Olympics year and uh, McDonald's were running this pr promotion where if the US won a, a gold medal, you won a, I think it was a Big Mac. And then if they won a, a silver medal, you get a large fries and a bronze, you get a Coke. And so we were being kind of pretty chatted <laughs> by wanting the US to win all these mm -hmm. All these, all these medals. Because if you had a, a, a ticket that matched the winning, um, winning sport, you'd win one of the items. So that kept kept us alive on the road. And this is uh, was this also the trip where you went through Vegas? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I that part was very um, interesting as well. In part because you're describing like taking a, a, a jaunt through the casinos there, and and in a way, kind of witnessing gaming or, or at its worst, you know, at its kind of like crushing worst, whilst uh, you and your cohorts are kind of on this like mission of passion. And, uh, you know, and you've been describing like just being so inspired by these new ideas and then these new game possibilities that are emerging. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, I mean, I think Vegas is an amazing place if you go there for a few days, but um, to see people losing <laughs> their money, one particular gentleman from Japan, it was um, a bit sad to see his $100 bills disappear so quickly that so we didn't dare gamble a penny because we just couldn't afford it. So how long did this, um, uh, did this process of going back and, and sort of piecing together the story uh, of uh, the early games workshops days, uh, you know, trying to find these various uh, photographs, like how, how long did it take to put all this together? Well, I thought it was going to take about six months. And I think it took nearly four years because... Um, it wasn't just the process of, of of doing it. I was. It was also. Uh, it was. It's doing it in times where I, where I was free because even though I'm nearly seventy three years old, I'm I'm still very much working full time on on various projects. Still writing Friday Fantasy game books, uh, game books in which you are the hero, the branching narrative with the game system attached. It's the fortieth anniversary this year, and I wrote a new book to celebrate that, Shadows of the Giants which was uh, great to go back to, to my roots in, in that respect. And I'm also, I also have my own school in Bournemouth, which is all around digital creativity and good arts education using game-based learning and very much influenced by Dungeons & Dragons, the, the power of play, as it were. And as I mentioned, um, I'm also a general partner in Hero Capital, which is a venture capital fund investing in video games, studios, and technologies. So... It's, it's a question of finding the time and then the more I, I spent researching and writing, the more I wanted it to be as good as it could possibly be. And so I went the extra mile, so to speak, to to try and tell the full story and make sure what I said was validated by cross-referencing in magazines and talking to the people who were, who were around at the time. Sadly, some of those people have since passed away, but um, nevertheless, I think it's a it's a pretty accurate recount of those origin years of origin story years of seventy five to eighty five. Yeah, and I, yeah, and I have to stress to everyone out there: you don't have to be a, like a game designer or just uh, um, to to be like a really hardcore uh, gaming fan to find the story engaging. You know, it's 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 ultimately the story of of people and their passions. Yes, yeah, so I say it's. It's. I'd like to see it almost like a, a coffee table book where you can uh, just casually look at the images of the time, the fashions, and the things we did in the seventies and early eighties. But also, if you're curious, you know, read some of the the story behind what became an incredible company now worth some three billion dollars on the 
on the London Stock Exchange and also perhaps be amused by some of the anecdotes told in the story. Now, you mentioned the the Fighting Fantasy game book series, and I definitely wanted to ask you about, about that. Um, I I actually I picked up um, I picked up the Warlock of Firetop Mountain uh, prior to this interview, and I was uh, playing through it with my son a bit, and uh, you know, tremendous fun uh, encountering all you know, encountering crocodiles and piranhas and goblins and so forth, and uh, you know, very very captivating for for both of us. And I think he was getting he was almost getting a little too into it, uh, concerned about the danger we were encountering. He's he's uh, ten, uh, but but this uh, this idea of the the game book. Um, like, how does it, like, what is the, what is the world of game books prior to your work with game books? And then like, like how, uh, like, what is the process like of, of laying these out and, and, tr- and creating one that works? Cause I, re- I definitely remember as a younger person picking up a, um, a game book by someone else. It was another company, a, a competitor, I imagine. And it was heartbreaking when it broke. I like it reached a point where I could not go any further because there was some sort of number error in the publication. Right. Well, I, I, I believe Fighting Fantasy was the very first game book series which had a branch in narrative and a game system attached to it. Around about the same time, although we hadn't seen them on this side of the Atlantic, the choose-your-own-adventure books were out, but they were more choose-your-own-paragraph. There was no game element to right. making. So what we tried to do with Fighting Fantasy was distill a role-playing experience into a single player solo solo adventure whereby the book replaced the games master and you the reader move from a passive reading experience into an interactive experience by baking choices so it's that empowerment because you are the hero at the end there are 400 paragraphs at the end of each one you have to make a choice simplistically do you turn left or right and then there are puzzles to solve, there are monsters to fight, that's when you use the dice, the three basic mm-hmm. characteristics, skill, stamina, and luck, which are modified through through your progress through the, through the adventure. Your skill might go up if you find a magic potion, or your stamina might go down if you lose a fight in combat uh, with a monster. And then you test your luck to escape or try and get extra extra benefits by rolling dice against your your luck roll. So we wanted to have a very thrilling experience for people that given the agency through choice is empowering and they were hugely successful. They went on to sell over 20 million copies globally. Um, and they got a whole generation of children reading in the 80s because of that the agency, that empowerment was very compelling and they spread by word of mouth. Clearly there was no internet at the time, but it was the, the word of mouth, which is the best kind of variety you could possibly hope for in in the playgrounds of the schools initially in the UK, and then it spread into Europe and ultimately globally. And um, so Warlock of Top Mountain, as you read, was the first one. And we wanted to use our own artists that we'd use at Games Workshop um, because we found those really stimulated children's imagination because they were realistically detailed, whereas Puffy were a bit nervous about it, the, the, the imprint, because they, as they were children's books, they wanted you know, nice safe covers with you know, little toadstool, little gnomes sitting on the toadstool, <laughs> and butterflies in the air, whereas we really wanted the, the, the kids to be kind of go, oh, my goodness, <laughs> what is that <laughs> horrendous creature coming at me? It's going to bite my head off. 
So we wanted that kind of thrill of uh, of excitement, and then um, the joy of them, you know, succeeding by getting through the through the through the book. So finding a key in one room allow you to open a chest or a door further on in the adventure. But writing them, as you say, was an absolute nightmare. It was like writing multiple storylines at once, and having to bring. Um, the readers back to certain common points, node points where they had to have essential information to allow them to progress, you know, to balance the economy so it wasn't too much gold or too little gold. You had to make sure it wasn't too difficult or too easy. So it was a, a fun experience, but with enough enough a challenge, but not impossible. Make sure there were no cul-de-sacs and all the choice you make. So we designed them on a flowchart, really, as like a computer, computer flowchart, making sure every Every split in the, in the in the adventure was notated, and and what could be found or not found at each decision point. But the, the important thing is that every decision had to have a consequence. Otherwise, why have it branching anyway? So it was really good fun, and of course, my my joy was to lure people to their doom, promise them <laughs> wealth and glory with with nice rose petals along the pathway, only for them to fall on poison spikes down a pit, which was uh, always a, always good fun for me. But of course, most people cheated. Those had their fingers oh. <laughs> multiple pages in the in, in the book, and you could see them on public transport, on buses and trains, with their fingers in about five places in the books. So it always used to make me laugh when I see that. I used to see that in those days. I love the the innovation of it. You mentioned the the dice that are used, uh, a couple of d six, but I love the innovation of the the dice at uh, uh, various dice combinations at the bottom of each page that you can flip through if yeah. you don't have physical dice and, and do a dice roll. That's, that was a more recent um, adaptation, uh, innovation uh, in, in the, the original books, which were much more highly detailed in their illustrations and perhaps more threatening. It didn't have uh, the dice roll. So, yeah, I guess that's... Uh, it would have made it easier for playing it on the train, I guess. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. 
Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Now, you mentioned computer games. The uh, games like uh, the, the Warlock of Firetop Mountain and these other um, game books you worked on, these eventually find their way into the, the world of computer gaming, right? They did. I mean, Diceman doesn't really cover too much about video games except for what we did at the time in, in the early 80s, um, selling Activision games and, and very early um, PCs and console gaming, um, just when the, there was an early crash in the early 80s, which was, had quite a negative impact on Games Workshop with the amount of stock we had at retail. But um, more recently, Fire Defensive Game Books have been available digitally from from uh, from Timman games in Australia who've designed them as apps and nomad games have created on games on on uh, switch and also on PC which is more of a top-down kind of not a collectible car game but being rewarded with cars when you progress through the adventure and ultimately get through so death trap dungeon city of thieves uh, Forest of Doom have all been ported to to digital formats. So there's something for everyone these days, books or video games. One thing I was wondering about as well is that, um, you know, obviously we have this, you know, the, the, the rich world of uh, miniature-based games and uh, Dungeons & Dragons, various role-playing games, and these these game books as well. And in the background, or in the forefront, depending on how you look at it, I guess, we have the emergence of, of uh, even more video game uh, opportunities. And today, uh, we have... You know, some pretty amazing video games out there. With the graphics are better than ever before, the game systems uh, involved are so complicated. But we as gamers, gamers of all ages, we keep coming back to 
to the, like we're coming back to these game books. We're coming back to, to physical tabletop games and to games that take place predominantly in our imagination. What does that mean, you think? I don't think one is at the expense of the other. I think it's nice to have, do, you know, I play both board games. I'm sitting in a room here, you might see with over 1,500 board games in the room, but I also have, you know, hundreds of video games. I think it's, it depends how you feel on the day. And you can also see that it's, that, you know, vinyl's made a revival. It's, people don't just want to stream music to whatever digital device they have. They like to have the physicality. Physical books have made a revival because people like to surround themselves with things that give them pleasure. The physical, as well as the digital, I think, helps satisfy all parts of the human mind rather than one at the expense of the other. So I enjoy both. It depends of who I'm going to play with or what I'm going to read and, and in what format I happen to be using at the time. If I'm traveling, obviously, it's going to be digital. If I'm at home, probably physical. Now I'm going to come back to something I was going to going to ask earlier, and I, I, I we end up going in a different direction. But uh, you described the the first Space Marine minis in the book, and uh, there's some lovely photographs of the, the little minis as well. Um, the Space Marines of Warhammer Forty Thousand have, have certainly become you know very iconic. They're a very recognizable part of the of the of the brand, and yeah. clearly big business as well. How how did this concept originally come together? Well, they've changed an awful lot over time. From the- <laughs> The Space Marines of of the eighties to the Space Marines of today, they've just got bigger, bolder, and 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 stronger, and have got an incredible aesthetic around them now. Of course, and everyone everyone loves them. They came from very humble beginnings. I think it was Bob Naismith who came up with the original Space Marine uh, look and feel in his uh, iconic first miniature. So. Like all things small, like acorns, they become oaks over time, given the right environment for growth through their popularity. So it's great to see them so amazingly successful today. And this, the power of Warhammer 40K is extraordinary. I think there's some, talking to about video games, I think there's some 50 licenses now and some extraordinary games being put out there. So yeah, the world of Warhammer is rich and famous and, and widespread. Now, obviously, there's a there's there's a lot to say about um, about game design and uh, approaches to game design and the and the business of game design and the business of, of gaming. Uh, do you have any quick advice to to throw out there to to anyone who uh, is a budding game designer or thinks they want to get into the uh, the industry of game design? Well, I guess it depends on what part of the industry you want to get into. Is it tabletop wargaming? Is it board games? Is it video games? That the 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 thing that unites them all when people ask me what's the most the three most important things about a game i will say gameplay 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 in video games whilst technology and graphics are essential they play a supporting role it always comes down to how you're enjoying the game to play rather than what things look like but in a board game of course great production values has really enhanced that experience now with all the the bits and the graphics are amazing now but the gameplay is what makes us want to start playing in the first place. So games should be quick to learn, but difficult to master. To, so you can get various degrees of expert uh, abilities in these games. So the, the, the better player you are, you should be more successful in winning. And of course, you need an exciting theme that resonates with everybody. Uh, I mean, in board games, and it's no surprise that Ticket to Ride has been successful. Uh, you can learn it 
very quickly, but it takes a long time to become a master of it, really, all the strategies. It looks great. The trains resonate with everybody. The pieces are lovely because you pick up these little train carriages and plot them around the board. So it's kind of got all the component parts of, of a classically successful game. And similarly with, with video games, um, the the appeal has to be in, in, in the gameplay. And then the, the meta level, of course, that's common denominator about all these is the enjoyment caused by people playing together so it's that joy by anything that is a shared experience is always enhanced and there's always an enhanced experience whether it's looking at a sunset or having dinner or going to the cinema with somebody and obviously with games you're playing with somebody that 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 um that that fun that's created by just the conversation, whether it's the shared experience of enjoyment or doing a deal and reneging on it, that's adds that extra level of, of of enjoyment. So there's a there are many things to consider when designing a game, but there's kind of there's there's four basic principles I think is absolutely uh, vital to include. Now you mentioned earlier all the all the activities you're involved in, uh, you you and of course you're a legend in the game design uh, industry. Um, uh, are, are, do, you, do you still gather with friends and just play games purely recreationally? We play once a week All right. <laughs> with the same group of people since the 80s. So still Steve Jackson plus Peter Molyneux from the video games industry, one of the UK's premier designers. I mean, he, he created um, Populous originally and Fable and Black and White and other amazing video games titles. And... Um, it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek gentleman's club in that um, we we play games and keep a record of all the games played every every, every week and uh, score points. And I send out a newsletter, the Games Night newsletter, largely just to criticise the other the, the other people playing, and <laughs> um, allows me as secretary to to uh, treat it as my own, kind of uh, give them verbal abuse the whole time. At the end of the year, we have a cup, the Pogo Cup, that's uh, presented to the champion. So it's it's uh, it's it's, it's we, just, we don't take ourselves seriously about doing it, but it adds another dimension to to to, to playing the games that we do. So you've know, been doing it for say since the 80s. I've published 627 issues of the Game Night newsletter to a circulation of six people. So coming back to the the book for a second, uh, again, uh, the book is um, is Dice Men: The Origin Story of Games Workshop. We talked a little bit about how it came together, but but uh, why did it come together? Why now? Why 2022? Well, I started writing it about four years ago, largely because Games Workshop was doing so well as a company. Everyone was saying, what is this games company on the London Stock Exchange that's now worth three or four billion dollars? That's ridiculous. How can it be worth more than some of the major corporations I've known all my life? Where did it come from? And when I meet people, I said, you know, what, do you, what was your first, how do you get into, into games? I said, well, I started a company called Games Workshop. And they said, well, how did that come about? So I thought, you know what, it really is about time. This was put down in writing as a kind of a personal memoir and, and something that could be there for posterity long after I'm, I've gone and Steve's gone. It would be there for, for people who might be remotely interested in what has been an incredible journey, the kind of birth of the the game industry in the UK and, and and globally, really, it was such a, an amateurish thing in the in the in the seventies. But to see that down on paper and won't be lost forever, I thought it was an important thing to do. So 
there we are life is a game for us well it's a it's a it's a great read i, I highly recommend it to our listeners uh, and i, I want to thank you for coming on the show and i also want to just thank you for um you know helping to bring about all these great creations that that mean so much to us i mean the the, the, the warhammer warhammer 40,000 uh like these are these are things that still bring me a lot of joy today as as an adult and certainly gave me a lot of joy when i, I first discovered them uh as a kid thank you that's very kind of you to say that i mean for me as a games player to have been able to work in games for 47 years been an absolute privilege and a joy so thank you thank you Thanks once more to Sir Ian for taking time out of his day to chat with me here. It was a real pleasure. Uh, again, the book is Dice Men, The Origin Story of Games Workshop, written with Steve Jackson. You can find that wherever you get your books. Uh, I highly recommend checking it out and picking it up. Just a reminder that core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays with a listener mail episode on Mondays, a short-form monster fact or artifact episode on Wednesdays, and on Fridays we set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. If you have any questions uh, that you would uh, like to ask, any information you'd like to share, do you have particular memories of uh, any of these uh, uh, games workshop creations that you would like to uh, to bring up? Uh, or if you have experience with the Fighting Fantasy Game Book series, I know these were near and dear to a lot of folks growing up, write in. Uh, we would love to hear from you and uh, potentially read those messages on a future episode of Listener Mail. Thanks, uh, as always, to Max and JJ for uh, producing, editing, and splicing everything together here on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And yeah, if you want to reach out to us, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.